Amen. <clears throat> thank you, Logan, and thank you for uh, uh, covering for me last week. We had already planned on his preaching last week so that I could take a little extra time that week to prepare for the inevitable uh, German exam that I had to take. And uh, so anyway, and then of course, by the time Saturday came around, it, I, I was thinking about it, that was the first time in my entire life that I've had the flu. And, uh, and of course, it went away within about a day or so, but uh, Sunday I was in no condition to be here. And so, um, so the Lord just gives, works in mysterious ways to uh, give me a little extra time to prepare for German, uh, which I have been asked, and yes, I did fail it. So, uh, Lord has a sense of humor too. <laughs> so, um, I've already made adjustments. I get a second attempt. And so, um, I've already made the arrangements, which I pretty much told the office beforehand I was going to have to, um, to, uh, take it again in eight weeks. And, uh, so we'll see how it goes again. I found out Latin was available. Latin is like easy Spanish. I, I could have... <laughs> I could have passed that with flying colors. I, I don't know why they didn't tell me this before because uh, I, I pretty much know why the Germans were mad at everybody in the 20th century. But, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, they were not in vain uh, because I, I, now that I know what, the, what to expect, I, I can have a little better idea of what to prepare for. We're going to be back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 17 is where we left off before. And uh, if you want to follow along in the pew and uh, the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 977. Matthew chapter 17 or 977 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. And uh, we've been talking about a community of the disciple. That's, that's really Matthew's theme throughout this entire section. Uh, it began a few chapters back, and uh, it's going to go all the way through chapter 18. So we've only got a few chapters left, and we're going to be covering quite a bit of text this morning. So I will just read the first nine verses uh, to get us going, and then we'll read the rest as we go through. But uh, Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with them, with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as, night, as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here if you wish I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Yet he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, for they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And we will stop there. You know, a few weeks ago, um, we had this uh, beautiful, brilliant 
snow that came into our area. Uh, I love the snow. I love it here because everything shuts down. Now in Denver, uh, nothing shut down, and so I didn't love it as much there. But, uh, but I do love it here. And one of the things I love about snow is just how beautiful it is. And uh, just everything covered in white. You have to admit, there's a, there's a radiance. There's, a, there's just an absolute radiant beauty that comes from that. And the sun reflecting from the snow and it's just, a, it's just a beautiful picture. And it's one of my favorite scenes to look at in nature and how everything is just so quiet and, and peaceful. But I also know that when you come out of the snow into your house, you have what I call snow blindness. Because the, because the snow is so brilliant and that white is so pure that when you walk into any artificially lit room, then your eyes have to adjust because there is nothing that quite compares to the pure white light of a blanket of snow. And no matter how bright your lights are in the house when you walk in, it's immediately dark. And so I, I call that snow blindness. And it kind of gives me, uh, it kind of reminds me of what we're looking at here. That as Christ was transfigured before these three disciples and they saw the true eminence, the true radiance, the true beauty that is Jesus Christ in all of his glory for at least just for a moment, the veil was taken off and they got to see Christ for who he really was. I can imagine that the entire rest of the world went dark for just a time. And we've been talking about the community of a disciple and how the church is to function as the church. And, and when we left off, we left off at Matthew 16, 28. And, and I re, you really can't read this passage without looking at that verse. Because he says to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Now, that is a very enigmatic promise. We don't, uh, some people look at that and they say, well, what exactly does that mean? Uh, your skepticals, uh, Bible interpreters will say that, that Jesus was simply mistaken, that uh, it never happened. He expected it to happen, but it never happened. Some others who'll say that this is proof positive that Christ must have come back in AD 70 and we are now living in the eternal age. Boy, doesn't that give you hope. And so there are some who say that. But I think the wording of this is, is very, very particular and very specific and, and it's pointing us to something that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I do not have a PowerPoint this morning, but if you look in Daniel 7 and uh, verses 13 and 14, we find this vision that Daniel has. And in this vision, he says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And this is the most important passage to understand what Christ means when he calls himself the son of man. It says here that he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You see that same language there, not just the son of man, but, but the idea of coming into his kingdom. And you see that same kind of verbiage that, that Christ is telling, telling his disciples. We see that in Daniel 13, it's behold, with the clouds of heaven. In the Old Testament, the clouds are always a, a symbol of the presence of God. And yet, out of those clouds of heaven comes one who is like the Son of Man. So we have the full deity, but we also have the humanity of this one who will be given a kingdom. And so to understand what's happening in the transfiguration, I think we need to understand that, that is pointing, it is pointing back to that passage in Daniel and showing that this is presenting before the people, presenting before his people, the community of God, that there is a direct parallel that the God-man is coming and he is here, he has arrived to take and claim his kingdom for himself. And the disciples are getting a preview of what that is. And Matthew is very clear. I believe every word of the Bible is inspired, is there for a reason. Matthew in 17.1 says, after six days, he's very specifically tying the transfiguration to that sentence. And so what we see here is the preview of the Son of Man. It's specifically tied to this event. And what does that mean for us? It means that he is showing them this, not just for Peter, James, and John, but also for the entire community of the redeemed. He wants the entire church to see the significance of what this is. And what we find here is that if we are going to properly function, if we're going to be the church, then the absolute number one thing we must do is exalt Christ for who he is. Christ must be exalted in every aspect of the church, in every functioning of the church, in every song that we sing. That's one reason why we're so picky about what songs we sing here. We want to make sure that they're in line with Scripture and they, they represent the Scripture's priorities. That everything we do, the small groups, the Sunday schools, uh, the, the committees, the functions, everything we do must exalt Christ if it is going to be a properly functioning aspect of the church. And so that's what we see is being told to us here. And there's a few things that we come across in this, in this uh, telling of the transfiguration that we see a true perspective, we see true instruction, and we see true power for ministry. That it all comes from exalting Christ. All, all of it comes. So let's look at this true perspective that we gain in verses two and three. This is a pivotal moment in the gospel, and, and, and that surprises some people because of the lack of emphasis that comes with the transfiguration. And yet all three of the synoptic gospels, that is to say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them hang, they pivot on this moment that these three disciples see the, uh, the veil of human flesh taken away from Christ for just a moment. And none of the three uh, writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we're concerned with Matthew here, he doesn't really give a theological reflection. 
He doesn't really give an explanation of it. But Peter, later on, he will, sit, he will tell us what the significance of this is. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, this is the king. This is the king. And we beheld his honor and we beheld his glory. This is a moment when they were allowed to see the true nature of Christ for who he is. Understand that when Christ became man, he gave up nothing of his deity. You know, some people say that. They say that he gave up being some aspect of God. No, he did not. The incarnation, beloved, it was not subtraction. It was addition. In other words, he did not give up anything of his godhood, but he took on human flesh and all of the nature of it except sin. So Matthew, he simply gives us a few details that his face was shining like the sun. His garments were white as snow, white, whiter than any launderer could ever make it. And then we see his company there, Moses and Elijah. Calvin says that it gave them a taste of his boundless glory, just a taste of it, just an ounce of it. What we see here is a preview of what we're going to be holding every day in eternity. What we're going to be holding every single day. And it testifies to them that when Peter said that we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, this event testifies to him that he is right. That based upon his faith, he sees the exalted Christ. And he knows that nothing else must be exalted through the same place. And Peter knows that because he's gonna find it out. In verse four, Peter says, Jesus is good. Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. Let's make three shelters. Uh, we're gonna make one for you. We're gonna make one for Moses. We're gonna make one for Elijah. Now, Peter gets a bum rap for saying that. Uh, some people give him a hard time and they just like to pick on Peter, I, you know, and and, uh, and, and my thought is, well, what would you say? <laughs> what, I mean, what would I say in this moment? What, I mean, you're seeing this awesome vision of Christ and, and, and you just have to say something. So what would you say? And this is the best he could come up with. Lord, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What he doesn't understand, he's essentially saying, we want to make three tabernacles one for each of you. And what he doesn't understand is that that would have insinuated that Jesus is no more than what Moses or Elijah was. Or that Moses and Elijah was what Jesus is. And the father cannot tolerate that. And so while he's even still speaking, even still, he hasn't even got it out yet. When a cloud descends down from heaven and the voice straight out of heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. 
In other words, nothing else must be exalted to the same place. All three disciples fell down in terror as they heard this voice out of heaven. And of course, Jesus comforts them and raises them back up. You know, there's only a few times in the scriptures that God's people are allowed to see unmediated glory of God. There's Ezekiel chapter one, which is, presents God as a warrior coming in on his warrior chariot. There's Isaiah chapter six, where he is, sees God in the throne room and God is the true king of the world, true king of Israel, who is to call him and to his people. But perhaps the most relevant to us is Revelation chapter one, where John on the Isle of Patmos, beginning his, his apocalypse, he sees the, the resurrected and glorified son of God. He sees him coming to speak to the churches. And in chapter one, verse 13 through 16, he says, and in the midst of the lampstands is one like a son of man. There's that language again. Clothed with a long robe, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. You see, it's pretty cool to have white hair. The tears of his head were white, the white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet are burnished bronze, refined in a fire, in a furnace. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Anyone ever been to Niagara Falls? His, in his right hand held the seven stars from his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You notice again the similarities, the son of man, the whiteness, the face shining like the sun. And this incredible vision that John gets in Revelation and, and the glorified Christ comes to him and says, speak what you hear to the churches. And in chapters two and three, we see the letters to the seven churches that John had responsibility for. And each one of them begins with a callback to this vision. In other words, if a church wants to function properly, we must get our eyes on Christ first and only. In other words, it, by exalting Christ, that is the only way that a church becomes healthy. That is the only way that a church functions properly. We must receive, he must receive glory in the church forever and ever. He must be our first love. He must be for us wisdom, righteousness, and holiness. He must be all in all in everything that Calvary Baptist Church does. You say, well, what does that look like? What do we mean? How does that how does that solve our problems? How does that bring forth our mission? Well, just imagine with me for a moment a single mother of two, three kids. She comes to our church. She works two or three jobs, and that doesn't even make ends meet. It just buys time. It just stretches it to the next pay period. She comes and hears all these tips about how to be a better parent. She, she hears everything that God expects of her 
to be a, a Christian mother. She already feels condemned. And that's all she hears in a church. How does she leave? She feels hopeless. She feels more like a failure. She feels more, she's despairing. But what if this same mother comes into a church and that church shows her the exalted Christ? What if she comes to church and she gets a vision for who Christ is? She gets a vision of who, of what he is. She gains hope. She knows she can rest in him, place her faith in him, a God who loves her and offers her complete wholeness. And yes, we still teach her the biblical ideas of a parent, but we do so in the context of the exalted Christ, the one who, can, who has forgiven her sin and who is able to do abundantly above and beyond anything that she could ever ask or think for herself. Which, one would you, which church would you rather send that single mother to? Which church would you rather be? We don't want people to leave condemned. We want people to leave glorifying Christ. Beloved, I don't want you to leave ever saying, what a great sermon Randy preached. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate that. But I don't want you to say, what a great sermon. I want you to say, what a great Christ. What a great God. What a great salvation we have. What a great life that Christ has given us. You know, beloved, it's so easy to lift up other things. So easy to get distracted. We're in a political year. Oh my goodness, here we go again. And it's gonna be nasty. And there's gonna be sides taken. And there's gonna be accusations. You're not American. You're not American. You're this, you're that. What if we did something better? What if instead of putting all of our hope in a temporal king who, regardless of who the choice is, he's got four years, that's it. What if instead we showed them the king of kings and the Lord of lords who, who by the way, we don't get to vote on but we acknowledge him and he gives us life and he gives us everything we need for life and godliness in this world. What if we showed people that? What if we did that? We must exalt Christ alone. May it never be said of us that we would exalt anything else, lift up anything else to Christ. So we have true perspective when we exalt Christ, but we also have true instruction. As he's coming down, it's Jesus, as they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus takes a, a little time to give instruction to these three. He tells them in verse 10, again, a little, excuse me, in verse 11, uh, verse nine, I'll get it right in a second. Verse nine, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commands them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. Let's just stop right there for a mo moment. He commands them not to say anything. 
not, at least not until he's risen from the dead. And, and skeptics have jumped on this. They, they, in fact, what this is called, it's called the messianic secret. And what that is, is that most of your skeptics today believe that Jesus was not declared God by the church until the 300s AD. And before that, um, he just, they just did, that's just not what they believed and, but they have to come up with some kind of explanation for this. And so they go back into the gospels and they say, well, this is kind of the church explaining why they didn't hold to that because Jesus said not to tell anyone. And that's what they call the messianic secret. First of all, beloved, we have, uh, we have manuscripts of Matthew. We have copies of Matthew with this text that are there before the 300s. So, and not only that, we have dug up churches in Israel that have inscriptions on the wall from the very first century, early in the first century, not long after Christ, and they have written on the wall, Jesus Christ, our Yahweh, our Lord. Kind of goes back to what I like to say, every time a shovel hits the dirt, another skeptic is buried. And so... That's not it, but why, but why does he tell them not to tell? We still have to ask that question. It's a, it's a good question. Why is he telling them this? And here's what, why I, I think that's it. Because even though they have been given insight into Jesus, who he is, they don't quite understand the nature of his work yet. And so as a result, if they go out into the towns, into the community, and they start recruiting people to come in and follow Christ, what would they be recruiting him for? Probably to join a military invasion into Jerusalem, because that was the predominant idea of what the Messiah was going to be. And so Jesus is telling them, look, you don't quite understand yet. And so, but when I am raised from the dead, you will understand. And at that time, go and tell everybody. But for right now, just keep it to yourselves. Keep it to yourselves. There's wisdom here. Until the son of man is raised from the dead, only then will they understand the true significance of the work of Christ. They understand this person. They're coming to that understanding. In fact, we see that in the second question they give in verse, nine, in verse 10. And the disciples ask him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? This is going back to Malachi chapter four and a prophecy that says there that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of Yahweh, Elijah will come first and prepare the way. And they've seen Christ now, that veil has been removed for a short time, and now they see that Christ has the very glory of God with him. He is the very son of God, and yet they're looking around and saying, wait a minute, where was Elijah? Uh, did we miss something here? Why did the scribes say that he came first. Of course, they have forgotten the lesson of Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, where Christ specifically identifies that John the Baptist actually fulfilled the role of Elijah. You see, you see, the Jews were thinking reincarnation, that Elijah was going to come back, maybe even from the dead or wherever it is he went, and, and he's going to essentially be the same Elijah that he was before. They, they had a misconception of what the Bible was actually saying. 
And so Jesus says, no. It was actually John the Baptist. He had already explained this. But again, he says here in verse 12, verse 11, Elijah does come. He will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already been here. But they did not recognize him. They did to him whatever they pleased. You see, this is going back to the fact that they misunderstand the nature of his work. They misunderstand the nature of what Messiah has actually come to do. Because they had this idea that when Elijah comes, he is going to gather all of Israel together and all of this great army, and then the Messiah is going to rise up. They're going to march on Jerusalem. They're going to take over the world, and they're going to have a life of ease and a life of comfort. And yet John the Baptist spent a good portion of his final days in prison, languishing, and ultimately he was beheaded by Herod. That's not the picture they had. That's not the way it was supposed to go. And yet Christ says that you need to understand, yes, Elijah has already come, but they did not recognize him and they did to him whatever they pleased. Oh, and by the way, they're gonna do the same thing to the Son of Man. The Son of Man is also going to suffer at their hands going to happen to him as well. They understood that the Son of Man was meant to bring the kingdom, but what they did not understand is that that kingdom comes through a cross. They did not understand that that kingdom is won through suffering and not through immediate victory or glory. But this is what all the scriptures point to. Every story in scripture is part of this bigger story that God is providing redemption and he is doing so in Christ. They had this picture of an earthly kingdom, a, a kingdom in which they will live this life of ease and comfort and everybody is going to serve them. And yet they, yet they would still be sinners. And Christ says, I've come to give you something better. I've come to give you eternal life and an eternal kingdom that is not full of sinners, but people who have been changed into the image of Christ through the suffering of his cross. You know, it's funny when people wax eloquent about the Bible attacking the church and they'll say something about, you know, all you Christians are all about family values. Well, look at the messed up families in the Bible. You know what? They're right. Those families are messed up. You think your family's bad. Try reading about what all Abraham's family did, what David did. I mean, just, I mean, these are messed up people. And yet they're missing, and yet those people who say those things, they're missing the point. The scripture, yes, they do record what they did, but it's a big misunderstanding. Sometimes it's not pretty. In fact, some of the greatest heroes of our faith did incredibly evil things. They love to point all this out, but beloved, they, they're missing the point 
Yes, there are examples to follow. Yes, there are sins to avoid. But all of those things point to the same one message that we are all sinners. And no matter how good we think we are, we are all sinners in need of one thing, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And no matter how good we think we are, no matter how little we think we've sinned, no matter how uh, great, fine, upstanding citizens we are, no matter, no matter if you pass your German exam on the first attempt or not, it doesn't matter because we are sinners and every single person in the scriptures are sinners and every single person that God worked through, he did so not to show us who they are and how great they are, but to show us who he is and how great he is. That's the point. That all of those things show us Christ. And all of the Old Testament points to him. Beloved, do you read the scriptures in light of Christ? Don't be satisfied with merely self-help or self-improvement. Come to the scriptures to see Christ, see your need of him, see, your, see his provision for you, see how he loves his people in the scriptures, and by extension, he loves you. And he has worked through all of those in order to bring salvation. Beloved, what, how, what he has given is better than what we could have ever hoped for. And it's better than what the disciples had in mind. And so they come to understand, yes, Elijah did come, but there is still going to be suffering. I think they just kind of glaze over this part because the suffering still takes the disciples by surprise. And beloved, in the same way, today, suffering still takes so many Christians by surprise. And yet, our Christ, our Lord, suffered and we will too. But it's through that suffering that he redeemed us. And it's through our suffering that he makes us more like him. You are never more like Christ than when you suffer and do so for the glory of God. And never more like Christ than in that moment. And so we see true instruction there. But finally, in the final verses, I have to be quick. You must exalt Christ for true power and ministry. They come down. I won't read the text entirely, but it says they came to a crowd and a man came up to him kneeling, asking, Lord, have mercy on me for my son. He has seizures. He suffers terribly for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. We see a man who, with a son who is severely demon-oppressed. And, and by the way, you can always spot demonic activity, but not demonic doctrines and teachings and ideas because they are obsessed with death. They are obsessed with death. Whether you want to point to the abortion industry or whether you want to point to euthanasia or whatever it is, if, if there's a demon involved, chances are there's death involved. Because demons are obsessed with death. Every picture we get of demonic activity in Scripture, they are literally trying to kill somebody. 
They were thrown into pigs. What did they do? They killed them. Obsessed with death. And here this demon is literally trying to kill this young man. And yet in verse 16, they brought him to the disciples. And the disciples were absolutely powerless. Could not do it. Can you imagine the picture of these disciples? I, I imagine this picture, and this is, this is randiology, so don't, so don't quote me here. If you do, I'll deny it. But this is randiology. I can imagine Jesus walking up to his 12 and saying, hey, there's a mountain there. I'm gonna go up on top. I'm gonna pray all night. Who's with me? No one raises their hands. So he says, all right, well, you three, you come on. And the disciples, all the rest of them, the other nine are like, all right, that's awesome. You guys go on, you go pray all night. We're gonna stay down here and uh, we're gonna cast out demons, okay? And uh, you guys go and do your thing on the mountain. We'll stay here and we'll do the real work, right? Only what they didn't realize is that the real work was on top of the mountain. The real work was in the presence of the exalted Christ. And when they come back down, they, they see that they are powerless to do anything good for this young man. They have nothing that they can give, nothing that they can offer. They are helpless for all their techniques. And by the way, they've been successful in the past. They've done this before. They know what they're doing. They remember how it went. They remember their past success. But for all of their techniques, all of their past success, all of the rest, they simply had no power to do what was needed to cure this boy. And at the end of the day, their past success didn't matter. None of their techniques mattered. All that mattered is whether they were able to do something for this boy or not, and they couldn't because they had no power from God. That's all it was. The father is so desperate, you can hear him. He, Jesus commands him to bring the boy to him and he rebukes the demon and it's gone just like that. It's almost anticlimactic. We don't see him writhing. We don't see anything. We just, he comes before the boy. boy just, uh, Jesus says, hey, you, gone. And he goes, it's it. No big paddle, no big boss battle or anything like that. He's just gone. Nothing to it. And so once again, the disciples need some instruction here in verse 19. The disciples come to Jesus privately and says, why could we not cast it out? And he says, quite simply, because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. Their faith was in themselves, not in Christ. They had a lot of faith in their technique. They had a lot of faith in their past success, but their faith was not in Christ. Therefore, it was little. I remember a friend of mine named Frank. He was traveling through Florida and uh, through a, a, an orange field. You know, Florida's famous for their oranges and their orange juice. And he was traveling through the field and uh, he said, you know, I want some honest, good Florida orange juice. The real stuff. I don't want the stuff you get in the grocery store. I want the real stuff. And so he stopped at this diner. And he comes in, he sits down, and uh, he says, uh, right in the middle of this orange grove or field, whatever you call it, and, uh, and he sits down, and the waitress comes up and says, what can I get you? He says, I would like a glass of real Florida orange juice. And she said, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't give you that. 
He said, why? She said, because our machine's broken. He was in a field full of Florida oranges. And yet they had learned to become so dependent on their machines that in a field full of oranges, they couldn't make them any orange juice. Love it, I wonder sometimes if the church gets that way. We get so dependent on our machines. And even though we're surrounded by a field of oranges, we can't make orange juice. I wonder if we get like that sometimes. We get so dependent. We put so much faith in our processes, so much faith in our techniques, so much faith in our personality and ourselves and the things we do. That that is where our faith is and not in the exalted Christ. It is Christ that we must have our faith. Simple reliance upon the power of Christ is all that's needed. Faithful obedience to his commands and merely trusting him for the results. That's all that's needed. I'm not bad-mouthing programs. They, they can be a very good help. They can be an organizational help. I'm not bad-mouthing that. But at the end of the day, we don't depend on them. We must depend on Christ and Christ exalted. And so, beloved, we must exalt Christ in everything we do, every aspect, everything we do. We must exalt him for true perspective, for true instruction, and for true, genuine power. Have you ever noticed that the first command of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other God before me? Have you ever noticed that if, you get that if you get that command right, then all the rest of them just kind of fall into place? They just kind of take care of themselves? Beloved, if we exalt, truly exalt Christ, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be taken care of. So how can we do that? What can we practically do? Number one, never forget the importance of prayer. In fact, Psalm 22, three says that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. We cannot exalt Christ any more than when we pray. That's why I love, we have so much prayer in our services now. And I love that. I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And, I, and, and just keep on doing it. I love that we have so much prayer in our services now. But consider spending time in prayer with your family when you arrive. I, I uh, went to a Korean church one time, church bursting at the seams. I was kind of curious, what are they doing? They were doing nothing special. Their worship was simple, very simple services. But one thing I did notice is that in the foyer, when the, when the families would come in, it was like, you know, like you would go to most churches. It was kind of a family reunion, you know, everybody seeing each other. But when they came into the sanctuary, Families sat together and they prayed together before service. It was powerful. It was powerful. Consider that. Number two, make them a part of our everyday conversation. When we come to the Lord's house, testify of the Lord's goodness. Uh, some of you, uh, every week when I ask you how you're doing, the first thing you say is, man, the Lord's good this week. And, and I love that. I love hearing that. Absolutely love it. Make it a part of your daily conversation. 
Prepare your family for Sunday. Mate, just from the very from the very time your kids are young, let them know there's something different about Sunday. It's a great time to go get donuts for breakfast. If you only eat out once a week, make it on Sunday so that your family knows there is something different. There's something joyful about Sunday. And as they grow up, they begin to recognize that this is the Lord's day. And that's why it's so special. Just make it a special day. And it's a great day for a nap too, amen? (laughs) It's a great day for rest. It's a great day for just being together and exalting Christ. Beloved, I'm out of time, but we must exalt Christ in everything we do as a church. I think, we do a, I think we do a pretty good job here, but we can always do better. And if you're here this morning and you're looking for something to help you, you're looking for something, you're looking for some help, beloved, we can offer you nothing better than Christ crucified, risen, exalted, and coming again to give life to everyone who believes. His kingdom is everlasting. And you can do no better than to place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these, this great vision of Christ that your people saw so many years ago and that later on you inspired them to record it for us that we may learn from their experience. Lord, may we come to this text and see you and you alone. And may we exalt nothing else at Calvary but Christ. So Father, we ask during this time, if there's one here who does not know Christ as their Savior, perhaps I'll ask some of those questions. Lord, if there's one here who perhaps they have been living a life that has exalted other things, that has obscured their vision of Christ, Lord, may they get that right. And may we always put Christ number one above everything else in our lives. May he be first in everything. Let's stand together and sing a song together. If you're here this morning, you need to know Christ as your savior. I invite you to come and ask questions. If maybe you've received the word, but you need to confess that in baptism. We can set that up for you. You want to be part of the church that exalts Christ. I believe you found one right here. And so let's sing together. If you have a need, I invite you to come forward.